Welcome to the Activist Insight Podcast, Beyond the Boardroom, a supplement to our monthly podcast, which takes you through the top shareholder activism stories as told by Activist Insight Monthly. Here we discuss shareholder activism with some of the industry's top experts. I'm Ilana DeRay, a financial reporter with Activist Insight, and today we are chatting with various advisors who attended and presented at SkyTop Conference's Shareholder Activism Summit in New York in January. Attorneys, bankers, proxy solicitors, and PR consultants all gathered at the Royalton Park Avenue to discuss the hottest trends in activism, including the globalization of activism, shareholder engagement with boards, and diversity. Here's what they had to say. You want to know why activism hasn't gone away? For the most part, I think what activism stands for is identifying companies that aren't performing well. If companies did well and did their jobs correctly and were responsive and keeping on top of things to the best of their ability, there'd be no need for activism. That was Eliezer Klein, a partner at Schulte, Roth & Zabel. He says activism will continue to exist so long as there are companies that underperform their peers. Activism is not a a desire to torture anyone. It's identifying underperforming companies and trying to drive change when the company isn't addressing it. So there are still many companies at different levels that aren't performing up to par. And as a result of that, you can be prepared, but the best preparation is to avoid it totally by just performing up to par. And that doesn't mean that you have to be up 20% a year. It means you should be performing as well as this company should perform. You should be evaluating what's important to a company. Should you be looking to sell yourself because you can't perform well in this market? Those types of things, and that's what activism has done, and that's not gone away and is unlikely, unfortunately, to go away because there's a need for it in order to improve companies. Indeed, activists often target underperforming companies in the hopes of turning around the firms to produce better results. Alvarez and Marcel Managing Director Joseph Berardino says the activists can serve as catalysts to promote change. The activists, in in some cases, serve as catalysts. And uh, once the catalyst has had its impact, i.e. there's a movement towards change, then the transformation really shouldn't matter in terms of how it's prosecuted. Now, the activists can continue to provide encouragement. But what are the key ingredients for a successful transformation? And uh, in my opinion, you know, there's probably three things you have to have. You probably need a little more, but to be overly simplistic, you need leadership totally engaged in driving real change. And that leadership needs to be the CEO with alignment from the board, whether the activist is on the board or on the outside looking in. So leadership needs to lead. The second thing I think that's critical to effective transformations is a transformation has to have as its center the customer proposition. It's not about cutting costs. It's not about buying and selling divisions. It's not about carving things out. Well, those might be things that need to get done. But if the conversation's around how do we align the organization to be much more agile to serve our clients or our customers, that's pretty easy to get people aligned behind. And given the disruption in the marketplace through technology and new entrants, etc., often people forget it's really all about the customer. And once you anchor the discussion in something, quote, safe and maybe even obvious, we find that eliminates a lot of the friction. Not all of it. Friction's good because that's how we get better. In terms of things you need in place for transformation beyond leadership, beyond a focus on the customer, and it's often a stumbling block, is are you prepared to do the hard stuff first? And too often, 
let's do something easy, let's get some momentum, let's build some credibility. And I feel when a transformation is required, the sooner you take on the hard stuff, the better. And uh, that's where there's often, you know, people might not disagree that whatever that hard decision is needs to be taken. Some might want to kick the can down the road, whereas others say, let's just get on with it. And so some of those differences of opinion might just be timing. But when should the board meet with an activist to discuss that change or transformation? Kex CNC co-CEO Jeremy Fielding says there is a fine line between a director's understanding of the situation and his or her responsibility to the activist. I think in a public activist campaign, the entire board needs to be very aware and cognizant of the, the big picture of how the company is engaging with the activist, understanding the agenda, uh, responding to it. At the same time, directors, I think, need to have an accurate understanding of the roles and responsibilities of them as directors versus management in helping to determine the individual play-by-play of a public activist campaign. So there's a balance, to be sure. KPMG senior advisor Stephen Brown, however, says engagement is key. He notes that directors should meet with all shareholders early and often. In terms of best practices, one is to understand that engagement can be a real strategic asset for the company to develop a relationship with their institutional investors and to get information. We always remember that for directors, the only natural predator that they have is an investor. They're the only people imbued by law to take their jobs away with the vote every year. Two is to do it early and often and to do it outside of proxy season. During proxy season, your institutional investors are busy voting proxies. And a lot of what a lot of corporations forget, once they're done with with their proxy season, they sort of say, we're done, uh, not knowing that the investor has a thousand other meetings to vote. And so they're not really keen in giving them the time of day. But during the off season, where there's the summer and the fall, they do have the time to spend with them. And and companies should spend the time with them, whether it's the, an actual independent director going along with management, or it's just management themselves, visiting their top institutional investors, so from asset-wise, the amount of holdings, but also those who were into governance and can be the noisiest. So it may not be the top 15 or, or top 20 holders, but maybe a smaller fund that is active in governance and noisy because investors do talk to each other. They're allowed to uh, since the early 90s where the SEC made it clear that talking around governance is not uh, in violation of the SEC rules. So they do talk to each other. And there are times in which smaller investors do raise issues to larger investors that were not on the radar screen for large investors. So it's important to understand what small, noisy investors are thinking around the company. Yet even with frequent engagement, companies may still face board battles from activists. Christopher Davis, an attorney at Kleinberg, Kaplan, Wolf & Cohen, says there are certain things an activist can do to gain the upper hand. Have the best nominees you have on a one-on-one matchup. Have people who are superior to the folks that the company has. Because especially as the institutional ownership has increased, there's not really the kind of forgiveness there was 10 or 15 years ago where activists could put their cousins on the board. Actually, have seen it. Right now, you better have people who are on all levels better, more qualified, have the right experience. Tremendous advantage to the activist if the activist is coming up with real board diversity too. Companies are still really bad at that and look at it almost mechanically. But I think folks can be really effective if they choose the right qualifications and with that come variations on age, gender, race, etc. It's something that American corporations are so bad at that now legislatures, as you've seen in California, are starting to push 
legislative solutions. And I think it would just be better if people could figure out that if you take advantage of putting the talents of 50% of your living population on the board, companies would be better. Indeed, diversity is becoming an increasingly relevant topic in recent years. Brown says institutional investors are taking an interest in better promoting diversity on the board. War for talent is actual war, um, and you win that by having people on your NOMGOV committee or having search advisors who really do the work and try to find the right people with the right mix of skills and the right mix of backgrounds. Because at the end of the day, if you come up with a slate who have the right skill sets at the right time, and by the way, there are plenty of those who are diverse in terms of geographic diversity, cognitive diversity, gender, and ethnicity. And if you do that work, you'll find those folks. And we know research shows that those boards make better decisions. And that's where the institutional investors are coming from in terms of long-term shareholder value is having the right mix of people on the board. And finally, I will say there's been for the past eight to 10 years, this enormous push by institutional investors in thinking about who's serving on boards. And that stems from the financial crisis of 2008, where after that crisis, shareholders got together and really thought about what did they miss? Or perhaps what what was their role in this demise? Uh, And one of the things they came up was that they weren't paying enough attention to who was sitting on the board. So that's been taken care of. They're paying attention a lot, uh, and that's why you have this further around board composition, board matrices, uh, and the issue around board diversity. Activists do face some setbacks, namely advance notice bylaws, which Klein says has become increasingly egregious. I think they're unfair because the whole premise to me is offensive. I understand that there's some desire, and definitely Delaware has allowed them, but what we're seeing is the abuse of even what Delaware allows. They're unfair in the sense that why is it that a company says, oh, we need to know you're coming to get us? Let the shareholders speak. Do you let us know what you're planning to do in advance? If there's certain things the company wants to do this year, are they required to say, oh, we can't put that out two months before the meeting? That's one we have to do five months before the meeting. Nothing like that exists. But a shareholder who's having an issue that they want to put in front of the other shareholders to vote on about the adequacy of a board, suddenly the board needs to know about that well in advance. So I don't find the whole concept is really fair, but I accept it. It is what it is. What I'm getting bothered by is how everyone keeps pushing the envelope. Like, well, I got your notice. I see there's a comma missing. Well, it's an invalid notice, and I'm exaggerating. But the point is that people are now taking this and using it for something that's not intended. And to me, it's not even a question of which jurisdiction I'm in, can I get away with it? Really, it's supposed to be justice. What is it supposed to do? Why aren't people thinking sometimes, what am I supposed to be doing here as a board, not what can I get away with? That's my biggest problem with uh, what's happened with advanced bylaws. And what about activism outside the U.S.? Brunswick partner Jonathan Dorley notes the increase in activism abroad, but says activists still face challenges in certain countries and regions. I think it varies on the jurisdiction. So if you look at certain countries like the Netherlands, for example, they have a de facto poison pill, which makes it really difficult for activists to pursue certain theses. If you look at, let's say, Italy or Germany, they tend to have large family shareholding as anchor shareholders, making it difficult to do certain things. But what we have seen is that activists that are successful investing outside the U.S. really adapt to local culture issues, whether it's written or unwritten rules about the way 
to engage with companies. For example, the poison pen letter that would go over well with a NYSE listed company probably isn't going to have the same impact in Japan. So activists are learning that they need to, to play by the local rules. And I think the thing they're also learning is that the U.S. market is a unique animal in that shareholder interest always reigns supreme. And when you look outside the U.S., that's almost never the case. So whether it's the government trying to protect a national treasure, employees sitting on the board, or other interests being involved in an activist or an outcome, successful activists are going to anticipate those and figure out a way to mitigate those or use them to their advantage. Nonetheless, Zorley says the U.K. is slowly catching up to the U.S. in terms of receptivity to activism. When you're comparing the U.S. and the U.K., there's a continuum of receptivity to activists. If you look at it from the U.S. side, we've had about 15 years of interacting with the modern incarnation of activists and are much more comfortable interacting with their ideas, with their tactics. The U.K., it's really been about five years. So what we're seeing is just different points of acceptance, but the acceptance is narrowing. I think importantly, Brunswick goes out and talks to the investment community every year to gauge their opinions on activists. And what we saw last year was that about 80% of investors in both the U.S. and the U.K., view activist investors as adding value and not just being disruptive. That's about 10 points higher than Europe and Asia. So you're really seeing neck and neck the investment community start to really put value in what activists are trying to bring to the table. It's, of course, important to remind ourselves that not all activists are created equal and not all of them get the same hearing, um, but we are seeing the acceptance level increase as time goes on. Fielding adds that companies in both the U.S. and the U.K. need to prove their strategies to investors, but notes that engagement is easier in the U.K. due to the country's governance structure. On both sides of the Atlantic, companies are rightly under pressure to demonstrate and explain to all shareholders their long-term agenda, their progress against that strategy, how they're dealing with the challenges that come up. If a company does that effectively, whether it's in Britain, Europe or the United States, they're going to get the benefit of the doubt from their shareholders. To be sure, in London and in Britain, there are some structural elements that make for more engaged, ongoing dialogue between shareholders and the company. The different, the non-executive chairman and their role, the stockbrokers and their role in engaging and facilitating dialogue. And what that means is that issues and challenges and concerns that shareholders have tend to be infused into the board discussion prior to it becoming a conflagration that requires an activist to get involved. But again, here in the US as well, if a company is doing that kind of care and feeding of its shareholders, of listening and understanding to its shareholders on a regular basis, it should be that they're getting the benefit of the doubt as much as a a European company. That's it for this episode of the Activist Insight Podcast, Beyond the Boardroom. If you would like to join us on a future episode, or if you have any comments or questions, please email press at activistinsight.com. Please do rate and review the podcast on whichever platform you are using to help others access our reporting. I'm Ilana Duray. Thanks for listening.